Well, good morning. Thank you for being here with us so we can study the Word of God together. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer as we ask the Lord to bless our time, Father? We thank you for today, opportunity to worship you. Lord, we know that we have that privilege each and every day that you allow us to even consume the air that you have created for our very survival. And we can worship you because of that. We can worship you because we are alive. Most of all, we worship you because you have saved us through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. And that by the power of your spirit, we can live in order to glorify your name. We can do what you ask of us, what you command of us irrespective of what others might think and what others may do. The only one we desire to please and honor is you. And so we ask that you would uh, honor your name this morning as we study your word, that you would use it to impact us, that we would not simply receive it as words, that we would not quickly forget what we hear, that we would think deeply about the implications of the truth that we're hearing, that we might apply it into our own lives in the situations that you allow. Father, we live in a world that hated you, <clears throat> and you have told us because it hated you, it will hate us. That's not a very comforting prospect in one sense because we don't want to be hated. And yet at the same time, there's no better place to be than to be standing with you, even if that means we're hated. So allow us to do that with great joy. For your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin our time this morning, I'll ask you to take your Bibles and to open them with me to our study of Second Peter. <clears throat> Second Peter. Last Lord's Day, we took a brief detour as we were studying the similar subject on this whole reality of <clears throat> testing the spirits, and we looked at it from 1 John. And so with that message maybe in your mind as you think about your time of worship this morning, we are turning again our attention here to 2 Peter chapter 2. And since we were away from this text last week, let's begin our time this morning by allowing me to read for us verses 1 through 10. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. <clears throat> Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, because by what he saw and heard that Righteous man, Lot, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. I want to stop right there. And of course, we understand that Peter's highlighting for us a great contrast. A contrast that has been around since the fall of man. A contrast, in fact, that we are faced with in our very own daily lives. A contrast between that which is true and that which is inherently false. And when we are speaking of the Bible, when we think about what is between the leather that you might have on your lap right now, the 66 books of God's Word, when we think about that which is in the Bible, then the glaring difference becomes that which is between the true prophet of God and those who claim to be true, but in fact are pseudo-prophets. They are false prophets. God is true, and all others are false. In fact, Proverbs 30, verse 6 says, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. This is the reality of what liars are. Liars tell lies. And one of the glaring differences between that which is true and that which is false is that the true will tell the truth even if it causes difficulty in your inner self or with relationships between other people. In other words, a true prophet of God will tell it as God means it. A true prophet speaks truth. Now, I trust we remember what Peter said to the Christians back in chapter 1 in order to strengthen their faith. Remember, beginning in verse 5, he said that if we are truly people of God, as he's described it for those who have received a faith the same kind as ours in verse 1, if we are truly Christians, if we are truly the people of God, then we live by that reality. We live by that truth. And that is simply to say that since we are those who have faith that is the same as Peter and the same as the apostles and the same as every believer who has gone before us in history, 
then we can be rest assured that we have been given what we need to live godly lives. We can live, actually, in honor of God and to God since we know the promises of God. Because those promises and living by those promises, the promises are based upon the very character and nature of God himself. And therefore, since we are true Christians, then we, as verses 5 through 7 says, diligently live out our faith through these various areas. That's what Christians are to be. That's how Christians are to live. This is how we are to carry out our lives. And Peter, being a true prophet of God, doesn't let us get away with speculating about what that kind of living does or what it does not do. In other words, if we don't live that way, Peter doesn't let us just assume that we can go on being good people. And he doesn't say that if we live, and he says if we live that way, he doesn't let us speculate as to what that might mean. He speaks truth to us by telling us in verses 8 and 9 exactly what it means to live by these various character qualities. This is how they are to reflect in our lives. He says, if those character qualities listed in verses 5 through 7 are being diligently lived out because of faith in Jesus Christ, if they are growing through being practiced, then we will be fruitful and useful in our Christian lives. You notice that right there in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing then they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. That means we are useful and fruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he puts the opposite there in verse 9. We can make no mistake about it. If we are neglecting these as Christians, then we have to make no mistake about it. We are not growing Christians. It's that simple. If we are neglecting those, then we are not growing. In fact, God says that the ones who are not growing are those who actually have forgotten, verse 9 says, they have forgotten their purification from their sins. They have forgotten, in other words, what God through Jesus Christ has done for them by faith in him, that he has purified you from sins, and therefore because you have the power of God, the indwelling Holy Spirit, faith in Jesus Christ, the promises of God, you can actually do what God has asked and commanded you to do. You see, this is what a true prophet does. They tell us the truth as God means it. Sometimes the truth can hurt. Sometimes it doesn't feel very good. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. In fact, I would go so far as you say is that most of the time it's uncomfortable because pride gets in the way. Our own self, our own old man, the old person who we were before Christ gets in the way. We don't want that. We don't want to change. We don't want to have to work. We don't want to have to do the hard things in order to to carry out these diligent qualities here. We just want it to come easy. And so when the true prophet comes along and tells us something that God means by what he says, that can hurt. That's not what false prophets do. 
False prophets lie. And Peter reflects to us that they lie in various ways. And Peter lists three specific ways here in the first three verses of chapter 2 in which false teachers lie. Three specific ways in which they lie. This isn't all of the ways they lie. This isn't the exhaustive list in how they lie. In fact, we're going to see some of their character qualities in chapter 3 and also when we study the book of Jude. But here is just three ways, specific ways, in which they lie. And then Peter follows that up in the, in the verses to follow with, with examples from world history and how God has judged those kinds of things. And he does that in order to help strengthen our certainty. The reality that we can be certain, certainly assured about what God has said and what God has done and will do. Let's look quickly then at these three specific ways in which false prophets lie. Number one is this. Peter says that false prophets secretly introduce destructive heresies. They secretly introduce destructive heresies. Notice in verse two or chapter two, verse one, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false prophets among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, I suppose we could sum up what Peter says here by saying that what they say is untrustworthy. That's really a way of summing it up. It's untrustworthy. Why? Because its very nature of what they are saying is not to build up, it is to destroy. You notice that. They are those who even deny the master who bought them, we'll get to that in a moment, but bringing swift destruction upon themselves bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And it even says in verse 3, their destruction is not asleep. And then, of course, Peter gives those three examples of God doing just that, destroying the wicked. And so you notice that the destruction that they bring, by God's grace, by the way, eventually comes upon them, eventually comes upon them. They bring swift destruction upon themselves. So they destroy by secrecy. That's the idea. They secretly introduce, notice, destructive heresies, bringing swift destruction. They destroy by secrecy. And it says they secretly introduce. So it has to be secret. This is the way it it comes. It has to subvert. It has to come under the radar. If it wasn't secret, no one would fall for it. No one would would come uh, be oblivious to the scheme, if you will. That's how they come. They they come under the radar, if you will. They're stealth. It's unseen. It's destructive. We have military aircraft that have that ability to come under the radar, to come in undetected, and they are filled with the ability to destroy. That's exactly the idea. And so when you survey the false prophets, particularly in the Old Testament, There are these characteristics, these characteristics that continue to be seen, this secrecy that's there. And here's the characteristics. They 
that's secret about them. They, They don't speak with divine authority. There's no divine authority. When Jesus spoke, they were amazed at Jesus speaking because he spoke as one who had authority. There's no divine authority with the false teachers. And typically, they speak of some kind of peace that is coming through their message, but it's always fake. It's always false. And of course, they're always condemned to punishment by God. I'll just give us a couple examples of this from the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 23 Beginning in verse 13, Jeremiah prophesies to the people of Israel, and he says, In the prophets of Samaria, now Samaria was the place where the Jews had intermingled with those around them, the nations around them, so they were half-breed Jews, if you will, and and those who were the pure Jews, if we could even use that term, hated Samaria. But there were prophets in Samaria, and they said, I saw, and they These prophets said they saw unsavory things. They prophesied by Baal. That's what God's saying about them. Yeah, they're prophets. They're they're false prophets, but they're not secret false prophets. It's clear who they follow. They prophesy about Baal, who's the false god. They lead people astray. But notice verse 14 of Jeremiah 23. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. Well, what is that, God? What have you seen? They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and the in- its inhabitants like Gomorrah. In other words, here's the prophets of Jerusalem who are saying all along, we follow God, we follow God, God is our Savior, we love God, and yet they're living in such a way that decries that very profession. Their lives are secretly evil. In fact, they commit adultery. We're not sure if that's marital infidelity or the idea of spiritual infidelity. I think that's more the idea. They have committed a spiritual adultery. They say they love God. They say they're of God, and yet they worship evil. And of course, in doing that, as they walk in lies, their lives are lies because they say one thing and live another way. They walk in lies, and so in doing so, they strengthen the hands of evildoers. God hates that, and therefore God says in verse 15, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink, for from the prophets of Jerusalem ungodliness has gone out into all the land. This is what God thinks of the false. Jeremiah 23 and verse 16, thus says the Lord of hosts, here's what God says then, here, that's the assessment. you got prophets in Samaria who are false prophets, but we know it's clear they're following false gods. It's like the, the false religions of today who clearly are not following the God of Scriptures. We know that. That's clear. But those the undermine, the ones that are undermining the truth, the Lord of hosts says, don't listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak of visions in their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord, They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. What an incredible thing. Here are people who claim to know God, who, who say to those who despise the God whom they claim they love, 
Don't worry about it. All's going to be good with you. To everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. Don't worry about God judging you. Listen, we're all headed to the same direction. Everybody who says they love God or like God are all going to the same place. Don't worry about it. We'll all arrive safely. Or Ezekiel chapter 13. That was Jeremiah 23. Here's Ezekiel chapter 13. The Lord, the word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel says, God says, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts. Here's what they say. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. They're saying, hear the word of the Lord. They're speaking as if they're speaking on behalf of God. Here's what God is saying. Here's what he means by what he's saying. God says to Ezekiel, listen, you tell him this. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, all I have not Although I have not spoken, therefore thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, and say to those who smear it with whitewash, that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, Where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash, and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. And when it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord." Thus, I will spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. You see, they introduced destructive heresies falsehoods, lies, imaginations of themselves, not with divine authority, but things conjured up in their own way. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 2, the words, the, the phrase destructive heresy doesn't necessarily point to one doctrine, one thing being taught, but rather the entirety of what they say. 
In other words, they introduce opinions that are destructive to your faith. In fact, the word heresies here in the original language means choice. A choice. In fact, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 15, it's applied to the views held by a certain group. It's their views, their, their choice. So instead of speaking absolute and unchanging truth of God, instead of giving what God means by what He says when they say, thus says the Lord, they introduce a different choice, some other option. And the result of those false choices is always the same. It's destructive. The choices destroy the faith of those who follow it. And notice, notice the effect of their teaching. Peter sums it up in a way in the phrase when he says, even denying the master who bought them. In other words, part of what Peter is saying, and we're going to cover 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 in, in more detail in our study on the atonement when we deal with that in our evening service in time. So we're not going to get into every detail now because this verse can be very controversial when it comes to for whom did Christ die because here are false teachers and it appears as if the language here indicates that he died for them. Well, how can that be? But what I want to bring across is part of what Peter is saying here is that that these false teachers and what they are saying is undermining the very seriousness of man's sinfulness. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that they are denying that man is eternally guilty before God by their very lives. And in that, they are also denying the costliness of the death of Christ in order to redeem His own. They're denying those things by their very words, and their very life, just like we saw in the Old Testament. In fact, the term here used and translated here as bought in verse 1 is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It's used in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in verse 23 to speak of the redemption of Israel from Egypt. Here's what it says. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? That word redeemed is the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as it is here in Second Peter in the original language for bought. They, they were bought. God made himself a name and did great things and awesome things by driving out before the people. This is what it says in 2 Samuel 7, 23. He drove out before the people whom he redeemed for himself from Egypt. <clears throat> That's the idea. So when God redeemed his own, it was not simply to free them from the bondage of sin or the bondage of the oppressor like he redeemed Israel from Egypt. <clears throat> but it was also to free them to a changed way of living, to live for Him. And all the credit was to go to Him for that. No credit was to go to the one who was redeemed, but it was to go to the Redeemer. And so false teachers, no doubt, understand that salvation is through Jesus Christ, 
They no doubt understand that. In fact, they speak of him often. <clears throat> they often say, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. But what they refuse to acknowledge often is the eternal penalty for sin and the obligation of godliness for Christian living. That's what they deny. Therefore, by their very lives, what they say and do, they deny that Christ had to or did pay the price for salvation. They deny the master who bought them. They actually are denying, in, in a sense, the very atonement made by Jesus Christ. They deny he bought sinners. They claim to know him, but their very lives are a denial of that reality. I was reading some of the commentators on this very passage. One man said it this way, The person who attempts to serve God and self is on the high road to swift destruction. The person who tries to serve self while saying they're serving God is actually a lie. That's what Peter is saying here. False teachers speak of freedom from destruction, that everything will be okay, don't worry about it, just go ahead, as long as you say you believe in Jesus, go for it. It's no big deal. They speak of freedom from destruction, and yet they will be judged by the very return of Christ, which they deny. You say, are they really denying the return of Christ? Well, they speak of that. Over in chapter 3, Peter says in verse 3, know this first of all, then the last days mockers will come with their mocking. So he's saying, okay, there's going to be some come mocking what's happening, mocking, mocking, mocking. But they're really following after their own lusts, and they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? You see, when's Jesus going to come? Yeah, you say Jesus is going to come, but, but really, is he going to come? Wherever since the fathers fell asleep, doesn't all just continue on just from the beginning of creation? It's all been the same. They're saying that. They're denying the very return of Christ. They're denying the reality that judgment is to come. They're denying the reality that Christ had to pay the price to buy sinners from the slave market of sin. They're denying that by their very lives and by their very words. That is a lie. It's a lie. And so the first way the false teachers lie is through secret heresies. Secret heresies. They lead to destruction. There's a second way. There's a second way in which they lie, and that is through sensuality. Notice verse 2. And many, we talked about that last time, many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow their sensuality. It's unfortunate that the, in some ways that the translators use that word sensuality in today's uh, English translation of the Bible. I think it was accurate back in the day when it was translated into these languages for the most part. But here, uh, sensuality doesn't carry similar ideas in, in the minds of many today because it has the tendency to drive our minds only in one direction. We think 
when we hear sensuality, we think of some kind of sexual immorality. And certainly that's true. Sensuality has that idea, this sexual immorality that is rampant, particularly rampant in our day and age. And particularly that we see in many false teachers today by way of their own very lives. They are sexually immoral. And you can see that when you read on, even in the passage by way of Peter here and the character qualities of them. It's, a, it's an immorality that, that has to do with certainly the sexuality in their life. But it's often visible through some kind of... Uh, through other ways, because Peter is referring here, I think, to more than just this sexuality, this publicly exposed sexual sin that we see happen so often. It's deeper than that, deeper than that, because this is an immorality or a shameful way of life that is recklessly immoral. And the very opposite, in other words, it's the very opposite of the way of truth. Here's how Jesus said it in John 14, 6. I am the truth, right? I am the truth. Therefore, to claim him as Savior and yet live in a way that is contrary to who he is, he is truth, is sinful defection from him, which Jesus equates with spiritual immorality. In other words, the kind of living, this kind of living is the shameful way of life. And to claim to follow the one who is the truth, but not live by that, not strive to live by that, not fighting sin in your life and living by that is to bring shame upon the truth. Spiritual immorality. Notice Peter says, because of that kind of living, the way of the truth will be maligned. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, that is, because of them, because of following their example, because of following their their possibly sexual immorality, and certainly their spiritual immorality, the way of the truth will be maligned. In other words, it will be the way of the truth will seem as if so many people are saying it's not true. They'll be speaking of the truth as if it's a lie because of following after the spiritual immorality of false teacher. Listen, we know this to be self-evident. We know it to be self-evident. And we heard it from the Old Testament passages that I read about before in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. When someone claims to know God and lives in ways that are contrary to what God says in the Bible, and as a Christian is to live, it maligns the very truth of God. Maligns the very truth of God. I've known many an unsaved person who has refused to believe the gospel because they've pointed to the lives of Christians who have said, if that's the God you serve, I don't want anything to be have to do with that God. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, here's what he said to us as Christians, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, 
they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You see, that's the very opposite of what false teachers do. False teachers simply introduce destructive heresies by what they say and then by how they live their sensuality. And the truth, the truth of God, the authoritative word of God is maligned because of that. So false teachers live false lives. And sadly, many will follow them in their destruction. And false teachers introduce, by way of sensuality, their own words. And then thirdly, and then thirdly, thirdly, they lie through being greedy and hiding what is to come. Being greedy and hiding what is to come. Notice verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It's interesting that this was the very accusation that some made against the Apostle Paul, that he was greedy, that he was using flattery and and false words just to simply gain something from the people. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Paul was saying, listen, Thessalonian believers, you know how we came. We didn't come like all the others come. We didn't come with flattering speech to you. We didn't come with this pretext to get from you, to extract from you something for ourselves. God's witness to that. We had to learn something from that, beloved, because that is what flattering speech is premised upon, getting something from the other person. Paul was saying, listen, we are not wanting anything from you except that you entrust yourself to God. I want nothing from you, Paul said, except that you entrust yourself to God and begin and do live according to his word. We're going to say what needs to be said, even if you consider us fools and even if you reject us. We are going to say what God says and what God means by what he says in order that we might be encouraged to do what God says. That's what Paul was saying to the Thessalonian believers. And that's what we are saying here. And that's what the apostle Peter is saying to us that false teachers do not do. In their greed, they exploit you. The word exploit is an interesting word. Interesting word. In the original language, it's where we get our word emporium. Emporium. We know what an emporium is. An emporium is a place where you can buy anything. Today, it's called Walmart. That's an emporium. You you can buy anything. But more than buying anything... The word here carries the idea that the one who tell who tries to sell it to you is flattering you so that you will buy it. They'll tell you anything so that you'll commit. In other words, they exploit you for their own profit. That's the idea. 
I know there are good ones in our country, but the whole used car market is kind of seen in that light, right? It's We even use the term sometimes derogatorily. It's the used car salesman idea, the person that will tell you anything in order that you might buy the product. A person who traveled around selling their goods and would say whatever's needed to be said so that you might, they might exploit you by way of their own greediness. In other words, they don't actually care about you. They don't actually care about what they're saying to you. They really only care about themselves. And therefore, Peter says here, their judgment is not long ago or is not long idle. From long ago, it's not idle. It's not not as if judgment isn't coming. Judgment is coming. It's not idle. He's saying that not only are they living in a state of being judged, but they don't care who they take with them to that judgment. That's the idea. Their destruction isn't asleep. And so what's Peter saying? This is a warning, beloved. This is a warning to us. A warning to us as Christians. A warning to us to be discriminating people in the right sense of that word. We are to be people who discriminate between truth and error. We cannot be duped by the false. We must know the truth. And we must know the character of the one who speaks the truth. We know where the truth is. We have been given the truth. This is the truth. And we have been given the arbiter of the truth, the Holy Spirit who leads us in truth. And we can understand these things because we have the mind of Christ if we truly know Christ. And we are to avoid the false teaching at all costs. Recognize it for what it is. Avoid it. Why? Because it only leads to destruction. It will destroy those who speak lies and it destroys those who follow those lies destroys the seeds of faith. And I suppose that's the greatest lie of all, isn't it? I suppose that's the greatest lie tucked in with the lies that are spewed in order to sound good and wrapped up in pretty packaging. The greatest lie of all is that there's no destruction coming for those who reject Jesus Christ. Then it'll all be okay with you if you don't believe. Don't worry about it. It's just believe in Jesus and go and live the way you want. No big deal. Everything's going to be fine. That's the greatest lie of all. Some say it's your best life now. Others claim that God wants you to be materially prosperous. Just get all you can now. This is where it's lived. And if you just sow a seed of faith, It's going to happen. Life here is going to be heavenly. Others say that you don't have to worry about a coming judgment. Simply believe in Jesus and all is going to be good. Don't concern yourself with how you might live now. Don't worry about that. Once saved, always saved. Don't concern yourself with sanctification. Don't concern yourself with diligent living. Listen, it's all grace. Don't don't throw the commands of Scripture out. 
I mean, after all, commands are just legalism, aren't they? False teachers of Peter's day were denying that Jesus was coming back to judge. No different than what we hear today. That's the underlying reality. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about where you are. Don't worry about your sanctification. Don't worry about your Christian living. Don't worry about the kind of church you go to. Don't worry about any of those kind of spiritual things. Just go on because after all, Jesus isn't going to judge anyway. Everybody's going to be fine. Peter says, no, that's not true. That's not true. Their destruction is not asleep. In fact, it's very much awake. Very much awake. Peter says, and I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. Notice verses 4 through 6. Notice what he says. And we're not going to cover all these verses today. I just want to kind of highlight them for us this morning to kind of put an exclamation point of what we've said already. He says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, skip down to verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Let's just take that one aspect. If If God, before the creation of humanity was ever taken place before God ever spoke the words, let there be light. Angelic beings were with God because God created them and they rebelled against God and God didn't spare them judgment. Then God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment today for the day of judgment, doesn't he? That's the implication. To say that there is no judgment coming, to say you'll be okay is a lie. That's the idea. It's a lie. Angels weren't spared. Angels didn't get spared the judgment of God. Why do you think you will? Verse 5. And did not spare, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows, verse 9, how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, doesn't he? I mean, if okay, throw away the angel thing in your mind if you want. You can kind of set that aside and say, well, that's all myth. I've never seen an angel. I don't know any of that. Okay, well, here's Noah. Here's, here's the earth. Here's the Andaluvian world before the flood. Here's the people of the world. And God didn't preserve the ancient world, did he? He didn't spare them judgment. No, he only saved eight people, the righteous. But the ungodly world was flooded. Don't think that you're going to be okay. Don't think that judgment isn't coming you. Don't listen to the false teachers who say, where is the coming of Christ? As if it's not going to happen. Don't listen to that. It's coming. Verse 6, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, what do you think is going to happen to you if you live ungodly? 
See, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. You see, don't go around thinking in your mind in this fabricated way that somehow you can say you know God and live any way you want. Don't think that you can just be someone who professes Jesus Christ and yet has no ability, no desire to live in the way that Peter says we ought to be living in verse chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. Don't think that Jesus isn't going to judge. He's given us plenty of examples from the angels to the Andalusian world to Sodom and Gomorrah as examples for all people who would live ungodly thereafter. Listen, Peter's words to us are just simply this, don't by the lie. Get out of the false teacher's emporium. Get out of it. Leave it. The day is coming when all will face the only living God. He has shown us clearly from history that that is true. Sinning angels didn't get away with their rebellion. The world in Noah's day didn't get away with their rebellion. The immoral people of Sodom and Gomorrah did not get away with their rebellion as long as God in His kind mercy even allowed it to happen for a time, and neither will anyone else. Therefore, let us make certain that each and every one of us know the truth, know what we believe, and who that truth is that we believe. We need to not simply know of the truth, but we need to know the one who is the truth. And let us live by our certain faith, a faith that we know because we've trusted the God who promised, and the God who promised His character and nature are certain and absolute. So that when the day comes, we will not just know the truth, but we will be shown to know Him who is the truth. That's what Peter's saying. Don't, don't, don't buy that. False teachers tell you lies. True teachers speak truth. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie. God can rescue the righteous. He can rescue them even from the worst of situations as we see Lot was rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah. But don't think that judgment is not going to come. Judgment is coming. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's been fast and it's been this morning to think through these things, to be challenged in our own hearts as to our love for you, the way in which we live our Christian lives, who we align ourselves with, how 
that speaks about what we claim, the very things that we say that we love. Oftentimes the truth is maligned because of our very lives by what we put out on with our words and with our actions through or in person or even in our day on social platforms in which all kinds of things are said that should not be said, malicious things and hurtful things and untruths, things that show us to be that which we do not claim. But Lord, you are true. You are absolute. Your word is true. And we can be discriminating Christians in all the right ways because of what your word says. And you have given us the, the means by your spirit to understand, to rightly divide it, to be clear in our understanding so that we would know with certainty just who it is we're following. Lord, I pray that our lives would be affected by that, that we would be truth tellers, not simply in words, but in life. Lord, we know the world hates you like we have heard and seen. Strengthen us in our faith so that we would finish well. For your glory we pray because of our Savior Jesus Christ, where we find our certain security. To his glory, amen.